Father in heaven, we, uh, Lord, we come to you this morning, and even as we've sung, Lord, as we've heard prayed already to you, Lord, we bless you. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are sinful people. Lord, you, you see into us, and even the things that we know, the sins that we've committed, Lord, that we are aware of, Lord, they, they are small in comparison to the great weight of sin that we carry with us all the time. Lord, we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, we see that, we know it, but Lord, you know it even more deeply. And yet, Lord, in spite of that, Lord, you have justified us. Lord, you've forgiven us for every sin, past, present, and future. Lord, the weight of all of that guilt is off of us. Lord, we have been received and forgiven, Lord, loved and brought into your presence. And Lord, we see the beauty and the glory and the wonder of that, Lord, through your word. And so, Lord, this morning, Lord, we bless you. We just bless you. We are so thankful for Christ and all that he has done for us. And Lord, we know that our forgiveness, our justification, Lord, though it came to us as a free gift, Lord, received by faith, Lord, it cost him everything. Lord, that he gave his life on a cross. Lord, the weight and the guilt of our shame was on him. Lord, he bore our sins on his body on the tree. And Lord, he paid the price for our iniquities. And so Lord, we just bless you this morning for him. And we love him, Lord, because he first loved us and gave himself up for us. And so Lord, this morning as we open your word and we, and we look at this topic of pride and humility, Lord, I pray that you would just... Use your word, Lord, even as we've just sung, Lord, to create in us true humility. We, we cannot do it in our own strength, Lord. It is only you. You must work if there will be any fruit in us. And so, Lord, I just pray that through your word, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see these things, Lord, to understand them. And, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as a church family, uh, we've been working through the book of Romans, and so I just want to invite you to take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to preach for you this morning from two uh, short verses, Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. So Romans 3, 27 and 28, uh, we've, as I said, been working through this book as a church family, and it's been a blessing for us. I have personally been just rocked by the book of Romans. It's an amazing text, as you know, uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and uh, it's it's just been a huge huge, huge blessing in my life and in, I think, the life of our church, I hope. <laughs> um, but it's been, a, it's been a joy to study personally. And we came through uh, Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and if you, if you know anything about the book of Romans, it's really pretty heavy. Uh, Paul starts in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, and he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteousness, unrighteousness of men. God is not happy with sin. He doesn't like it. In fact, it says he's angry with sinners, and he's angry about sin all the time. God is a wrathful God. And then Paul says, all of us are sinners, right? I mean, that's a huge problem. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I just want to appeal to you, and I'll do this consistently as I preach, appeal to you that this is true about you, that you are a sinner, and that you have fallen short of God's glory. And Paul makes that point so clear in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, he says that the Gentiles, that, that people in the world have sinned in a, in a host of different ways. Just look at me real quickly at the list that's in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 24, he explains the, the sin of, uh, really, all of the sexual sins of the world. And then he goes down through that and explains what that sin looks like. And in verse 28, he begins this list, the longest list in the New Testament. And he says, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I always like that one. Six kids, disobedient to parents. It's in the list, right? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and all that they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is the world, isn't it? And that's us too, isn't it? And what, what, this verse, what these verses are telling us is that all of us have these sins in us. You might be able to go through that list and say, well, I'm not really that much of an angry person, but you struggle with some other sin, right? Now, all of those sins ha- find residence in sinful people. 
And then Paul goes to chapter 2 and he says, if you think those guys are bad, there's someone who's worse. Who's worse than the sinners in chapter 1? The worse people than the sinners in chapter 1 are the proud people who think they're not sinners. And then he goes through this whole long list of the religious, pr- the religious pride of the Jews. And he says, listen, these guys, they think they're better than the Gentiles. And because of that, they're actually far worse. They commit the same sins and then they judge other people who do them. That, that makes them worse. They're now compounding their sin. And Paul says that sin is even greater. And then he goes into chapter 3 and he explains that the entire world is guilty before God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and Paul comes to that conclusion. But in Romans chapter 3, and and let me just say that as we were preaching through this in our church, people were like, are we done with the sin section yet? You're killing us, because every week was just heavy. But in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21, Paul begins what many have called the most important paragraph in the New Testament. Verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul, having put all of the weight of guilt on his readers, removes it in the finished work of Christ, doesn't he? It's a glorious, glorious paragraph. You know, John Piper said it's the most important paragraph in the New Testament. John Piper, I mean, he says something. He's probably right, right? But he didn't make that up. He stole that from Martin Luther, who said this is the most important paragraph in the New Testament. Why? Because it describes for us what has happened in the finished work of Christ for those who receive it by faith. What a glorious thing, isn't it? That we are justified. We are declared righteous. We're sinners, but we are declared righteous by God who shows us mercy through the finished work of Jesus Christ. All of our sins forgiven, everything paid, past, present, and future. You cannot lose what God has given you in this paragraph. Isn't that awesome? Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Sometimes our church, they're quiet. We need them to say amen more. Okay, so... Paul is writing this, right? Now, what do you know about Paul? Before Paul became a Christian, before Paul became the greatest church planner that ever lived, before Paul became a pastor, what was he doing? He was a Jew, wasn't he? And he was a Jew of Jews. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, I was blameless. He was a great guy. If you were a Jew, everyone liked Paul. He was climbing the ranks of Judaism. But even though he was all about religion, his religion was what? It was really about himself. Paul's religion was about himself. It was not about God. Paul would have, of course, talked about God. He would have thought a lot about God's word. He would have claimed to have obeyed God. But at the end of the day, everything that Paul did was about Paul. And then Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And everything about Paul changed. It was no longer about him. It was about Jesus And everything about him changed. All of his motives changed radically. And so when Paul concludes this paragraph about knowing Christ and his finished work, what does he do? What does he deal with to bring out the very first thing that he wants us to know when after he gives us this most important paragraph in the New Testament? And if you just look at verses 27 and 28, this is what he wants to deal with. He wants to deal with the most insidious of all sins, pride, pride. Verse 27, Paul says, where then is boasting? How are you going to boast, right? Most important paragraph in the New Testament, Jesus died for your sin. It's entirely of him. Where is boasting? It is excluded. And then he says, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Paul asked this rhetorical question, where is boasting? And I I think the answer, the obvious answer is it's gone, right? It's gone. It's eliminated. 
And in many ways, I think our, our culture is sort of start beginning to change. But I think, it, to be honest, we all sort of want to be humble, don't we? You want to be a humble person. I want to be a humble person. I'd like to be. But the problem with humility and pride is that pride is insidious. It's insidious. It works in itself into the corners of our hearts in such a way that it sort of infests everything that we have inside of us, all that we are. Charles Spurgeon said, pride will leave you when your grave clothes wrap you. It never goes away. It's inside of us in such a serious and insidious way. And it gets down into the corners of our lives and it begins to destroy all that we do. It pollutes everything. Pride is so dangerous. And the problem with pride is that it's very subtle. It works in a very subtle way because it works at the level of motivation. It works at the level of motivation. You know, things that we can't see in other people. You, you can't tell if I'm proud right now right? You might look at me and say, well, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the finished work of Christ. Maybe he's not proud, but I could have evil, proud thoughts in my heart right now, and you would never know that. The activities that we do on the outside, the things that we're doing do not shield us from pride. Pride can be so insidious that we can cover it over and hide. And there are things that we only know about ourselves, but those things can pollute everything that we do. They can pollute every corner of our Christian life. And so this morning, what I want to do is just help us, help me and all of us to put to death our spiritual pride. And the title of the sermon this morning is A DIY Guide to Humility. Now, the title is intentionally bad. <laughs> what is DIY? Do it yourself. Do it yourself. A do it yourself guide to humility. Now, this should, off, right off the start, you should say, that's the worst title I've ever heard for a sermon. And you would be right to say that. You would be right to say that. And this is point one, if you're going to take notes, diagnosing pride. Diagnosing pride. The problem with pride is that you can't beat it. The problem with pride is that we all have it, but we can't stop it, right? It's like me telling you not to think about a duck. And you just thought about a duck. You can't not do it, right? Why? Because it's so ingrained in our fallen nature that it is so difficult to kill. We can't kill it. We cannot make ourselves humble. You know, we say at our church, everyone is proud, and the one who thinks he's humble is the proudest of all. You can't get away from it. It's in all of us, isn't it? Every single one of us. And just when you think you've conquered pride, and you say to yourself, well, man, I think I'm humble. <sighs> And I'm in trouble again, right? I can't get away from it. It just keeps sort of attacking us, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis said that pride is like this. You have these idols that are floating up around you, the idol of some gift that you have or the idol of some ability, all these things that are coming up around you and they're telling you to be proud and you're smashing them down with your gospel hammer, smashing them down and there's one behind you that's floating up saying, good job, good job. <laughs> you can't stop. We can't stop. I wish we could, but we can't. And if we want to diagnose pride in our hearts, if we're going to kill it, we need to see exactly what it is before we kill it. And so I want to give you four areas of theological pride, four areas of spiritual pride, four places where as Christians, pride can sort of attack us. And as I said, if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, uh, this, this is also true of you, you, just in a slightly different way. The first one, and this is point A, if you're taking notes, is theology. Now, of course, we can have theological pride. Paul had theological pride before he became a believer. This, is, this can manifest itself in a whole bunch of different ways. As Christians, we can begin to think that we know better than other people, can't we? We can begin to think that we sort of have the corner on theological knowledge. After all, I went to the master's seminary. I'm a graduate. I have a master's in divinity. Who wants to question me? Right? That's the worst thinking I could ever have. I begin to think that we know we all do this. And we begin to sort of look down on people with slightly different theological positions. We, we see this with the Pharisees in Christ, don't we? In John 7, 45, they send officers to arrest Jesus. And they go to him and, and they come back to the Pharisees and they say, we couldn't arrest him. And the Pharisees say, why didn't you just arrest the guy? And they said, no one ever spoke like this guy speaks. No one ever talked like him. And they say, what do they say? They say, are you also deceived? Have any of the leaders believed in him? And what are they saying? This is a remarkable statement. They're saying, are you deceived by this guy who's teaching? Because we don't believe in him. If we don't believe in him, then certainly he's wrong. 
Right? That's just theological pride. It's, it's a bent on theological pride. And of course, the Pharisees have that. But this can also very subtly creep into our hearts. As Christians, we labor over theology. We want to understand the Bible. We read it. We want to understand how the Bible works, how theology works. We want to understand and put things together and sort of build this theological grid. And all of that is good. But as that's happening, that idol behind us can be telling us, good job, good job, look down on others. They are probably wrong, and you're probably right. But in our day, there's also a risk the opposite side. You can have theological pride by being non-theological and look down on people that are theological. Have you ever heard someone say to you, oh, I'm no theologian, I just love people? No, that's terrible. That's really a terrible thing to say because you're pitting theology and love against each other. You're pitting those two ideas against each other, and the Bible says the exact opposite. Your theology ought to bear out of itself love. To say that is to go against that. And so we can sit in our theological pride both on the positive side where we're sort of digging into theology and on the negative side where we say, I I just want to refuse all theology and just want to live the missional Christian life. Both of those can cause pride. There's other places where we can be proud in the Christian life. This is point B, I said, if you're taking notes, is service. We can easily take spiritual pride in our service, in our service to the church. Where, Where can this show up? This shows up when we're selfish and grabby when it comes to some ministry, right? There's something that we do, but we do it, right? And this can be so subtle, you know? We can all get into this, can't we? No, I'm the guy who sets up chairs. I set up the chairs. Bob, do something else. I'm on chairs, right? And that's easy for us to do. We can feel that, start to grab onto our service, And we can also feel this in service when we don't get affirmed for serving. You've you've all been here in the church before. You've felt this. You know how this feels. You're you're setting up chairs, and you've done 99 of the chairs. Now, we have have a church building that we rent, and we don't have a building so beautiful as this one, by the way. You're so lucky. I'm so jealous. Uh, But we we are setting up chairs to set up in in the room that we use for our Sunday school classes, and we're setting up chairs, and and you've all been here. You know, you're setting up the chairs, and you got to put 100 chairs up, and you're setting them up, and you get to number 98. And someone walks in the back door, and they grab a chair, and they set it up, and the pastor is walking by, and he's like, thanks, Bob. And you're like, wait, but I, no, right? What happens in your heart at that moment? I mean, you know, some of us, I won't name any names, but myself, we're like, I did all these, right? And we want to we sort of get the affirmation that we need because, hey, we're the one who did it, right? What is that? That's just pride in my service. Why was I setting up the chairs in the first place? I wasn't setting up the chairs so that the pastor would say, hey, good job, John, right? I was setting up the chairs for Jesus, but then Bob gets some credit, and I'm like, no, 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 that should be mine, that's dangerous. If there's anyone here named Bob, just forgive me. I know it's not intentionally picking on you. There's no one named Bob in our church, so it's helpful to use that as an illustration. We're sort of the other, well, the, the older brother, aren't we? Remember the older brother in the parable uh, of the two brothers, the parable of the prodigal son, it's called. He runs off and he comes back and the older brother says what? You killed the fatted calf for him, but you won't even give me a goat. You know, you, you never give me what I want. We get that way with our service. You know, I, I, we, I've been working so hard, and you, you don't even help me out. Like, no one ever gives me any credit. I never hear anything good. Pride can just take itself, take root into our service in the church in all sorts of evil ways. And again, on the flip side, pride can also attack our service the other side, can't it? We can begin to say, we can begin to be proud about how we don't serve. Now you say, well, what do you mean by that? How can you be proud about not serving? Well, there's lots of ways, right? There are certain tasks maybe that you think are beneath you, you know, where, where someone says, hey, we need someone to help out at the church, and like, I'm in, I'm in. I can teach a Bible study. I can teach, I can teach all sorts of different stuff. I'm an excellent teacher. And they're like, we're actually looking for someone to clean the bathrooms. And what's our reaction to that? I'm out. I'm out. I could do other things, right? You send somebody else, <laughs> right? Why? Well, it's, it's beneath me, Right? Or we can also be proud and we say, well, that's too much, too high of service for me, right? I can't do that. This happens all the time. You say, hey, brother, can you uh, pray for us during the service? And they're like, ah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure if I can do that. I'm nervous to do it. What is that? It's just pride, right? It's just pride. Both sides are. 
We could say, oh, I'd never do that, right? I'd never do that. It's beneath me. Or we could say, oh, I could never do that. It's above me. Either of those are pride. So we can be proud in our theology. We can be proud in our service. But there's more ways we can be proud. The third one, point C, is holiness. Some people take pride in their holiness. They see themselves as sort of the very best person they know. They've sort of achieved uh, Christian sainthood. They don't break the rules. They keep the commandments. They work for God. They're good people, right? And they know it. They know it. They're good. They're solid, right? They're holy. And that's a danger. That's a danger. And then on the flip side, there are a lot of people in our culture who take, in our Christian culture, who take pride in not being holy. You know, they're quick to trot out the verses where Jesus ate and drank with the tax collectors and sinners, right? They have those memorized. They're like on pretty wall things in their house. You know, I'm missional. I'm not holy. I go out to the people. I'm with them. They look down their noses on the stuffy fundamentalist types, right? They're quick to say how they are not like that, and they have connected with the world. Holiness can become a source of pride. So theology, our service, our holiness, and lastly, our maturity. Maturity can become a source of pride in our Christian life. You know, people that are proud about their maturity, they talk about how they sort of arrived. Uh, Of course, no one ever says that. No one would ever say, well, I've arrived as a Christian. Because that's terrible, right? So they won't say it out loud, but instead of that, they sort of just talk about how they can remember when they used to struggle with that sin, right? How, oh, when I was a young Christian, I also blank, 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 right? And sort of the air around them is sort of like a giant neon sign with arrows pointing at themselves. Every conversation sort of ends with a hanging pause where they're sort of expecting a compliment. When they sort of are waiting for someone to come and ask their counsel so that they can instruct those who are lesser in the Christian faith. And then again, there's the inverse of that too. There's lots of people in the Christian life who talk about how they're so weak, they're so it's so hard. Life is so difficult. Their Christian life, they never are growing. They're always self-deprecating. You know, they sort of wallow around in this morass of self-pity, and there's this constant sort of sense of Christian sorrow in their hearts. And both are pride. And none of these things are bad. Theology is good. Service is good. Holiness is good. Maturity is good. All of those are good things. But pretty soon, because of the sin that's still in our flesh, though we begin to hang our pride on those Christian things. We attach pride onto all of these things that we have done or that we are doing, and it becomes our identity. It becomes our identity. And what happens to us when we start to be proud like this? What comes out of our hearts when we start to have pride like this? This is point two, if you're taking notes. This is the dangers of pride. Pride is very dangerous. This sort of corruption at the motivational level, the why about what we're doing, not the what that we're doing, but the why we're doing it. When we start to corrupt our motivational level of our hearts, what begins to happen to us? Well, there's a number of things that the scriptures bear out. We, we know this, okay? And I want to give you eight, eight ways that pride can be so dangerous, Eight ways that spiritual pride can be visible and dangerous. The first one, if you're taking notes, is harshness. I think the first place that pride shows up is a harshness toward other people. You're just harsh. Harsh in our language, we're harsh in our words, right? Harsh in our hearts. Pride in the heart says things like, can you believe they think that? Can you believe that? Or did you see the terrible job they did in Sunday school last week? That was awful. I would have done better. Or I can't believe they watched that show. Can you believe they watched that show? That's unbelievable they watched that show. Or that person is so immature. I would never fall into that sin. And that harshness becomes real in our hearts. It talks out of a place of moral superiority. And because there's moral superiority, it's always laced with disgust. Just disgust about people who are less. We become harsh. Second, pride makes us loveless. Pride just decimates love. It destroys love, not only in our hearts, but in our mouths, everything. It it ruins love in our lives. Why? Because we spend all of our time thinking about ourselves. We're always thinking about us. And if we're thinking about us, who are we not thinking about? Anybody else, God or others, right? We can't love God because we're busy loving ourselves and we can't love other people because we're busy loving ourselves. 
And pretty soon, we stop loving. It destroys it inside of us. That poison begins to choke out love because pride has gripped our hearts. James says this, James chapter 3, verse 16, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition, pride, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. When pride begins to take root in us and we love ourselves, we cannot love others. We cannot love others. So we get harsh and we get loveless. Third, we become condemning. We become condemning people. Proud people are constantly condemning others. They don't point out their other people's sin in a spirit of gentleness. No, they stand in condemnation over other people. They, they point out other people's failures. For spiritually proud people, they take a snapshot of a person's life, and there is no such thing as Christian growth. There's no such thing as the movement of the spirit or change in the person. No, they're done. They've written that person off. It's over for them in their evaluation. And then they just stand in judgment over everyone around them. Now listen, I'm not talking about discernment. Discernment is a gift of God, right? It's a gift of God to point out someone else's sin and love and care and to help them through that struggle. That is a good thing. That is a kindness, a work of God in the heart. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about condemning people, right? Discerning people see sin issues and their hearts break for the sinner. Condemning people see sin issues and their hearts stand in judgment over the sinner. And the opposite of that is true too, right? This is the fourth one on your list if you're taking notes, defensiveness. It's the sort of the flip side of condemning. A, a proud person tends to take other people's sins and pump them up and blow them out of proportion. But when it comes to their own sins, they're totally unwilling to share the struggles that they're having in their heart. They, they're quick to justify their own failings. They're, they're quick to make excuses or to give reasons why it's okay. Now, people like this are incredibly difficult to approach. As a pastor, you want to care for someone, you want to serve them by confronting them about a sin, and you go to them, and you, and you, you know what's coming, right? <laughs> you know what's coming. You, you, you go to them knowing you're going to just get punched in the face. It's going to be so hard because you've got to wrestle them down before they'll ever listen to what you're saying. So pride makes us defensive. Fifth, pride makes us self-protective. A self-protective person never wants to open up about their struggles. They never want to be honest about their weaknesses, their need for Christ, their need for accountability, their need for help. They don't want to open up about that stuff. Why? They want to protect themselves. They want to hide behind their Christian demeanor. Proud people are just marked by externalism. It's sort of like always trying to keep the eggshell in place, you know, so that no one crushes it and sees who they really are on the inside. They want to keep all that up and, and keep it going and protect the image. Never open up about a weakness or a struggle. And goodness sakes, we all have them, don't we? All of us do. I'm, I got, I, I'm a mess in so many ways. Ask my kids. My daughter's here. Don't ask her. She already knows too much. <laughs> we're all sinners, right? We fail. I fail. And, but when we're proud, we don't want to tell anybody that. We want to hide from that and, and, and keep up the walls of our false appearance. Or we can also be self-protective and be unwilling to confront somebody else, right? Our, our pride keeps us from helping our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we don't want to go to them and point out a sin because, hey, they may not like me, and it's important that they like me. It's important that they know how godly I am, right? So I want to be self-protective. I'm not going to go there. And when they do, they go in harshness and condemnation instead of tenderness and kindness. So they just stand in judgment over them. So we can be self-protective when we're proud. Sixth, we can be attention-seeking. Proud people are radical attention-seekers. Radical attention-seekers. They want to be seen, heard, noticed, and applauded. They want approval. In fact, they need approval. Proud people need approval. They live and feed on approval. They know that they're the best at what they're doing, and they want everyone else to know that they're the best at what they're doing, and then to let them know also that they're the best at what they're doing. And that little sneaking suspicion in the heart that maybe they aren't actually the best, they just quash that, right? Pride just pushes that down and says, no, no, you need other people to tell you more about how good you are. Conversations generally come back to them, their theology, their service, their maturity, their holiness. And there's the, always the pending compliment being waited on. Pride makes us attention-seeking. 
Seventh, pride makes us compare ourselves with other people. Proud people are always comparing themselves to other people. They want attention, and so they're looking around at everyone else, and they're evaluating themselves on a spiritual level with everyone that's around them. You know, they, they sort of put themselves in the, in the gradation, then quickly they get to know people around them, and very quickly they put themselves somewhere in the category of where they stand in the Christian walk in terms of those areas. They kind of give themselves a grade, right? I get a better grade than that guy. He watches Seinfeld reruns. But I don't get as good a grade as those, those guys, that guy because his kid's got the Timothy Award in Awana. I mean, what is that, right? And pretty soon you put yourself, you're like, I got like a B plus. You know, there's some guys who are above me. I'm the pastor. He's an A. He's always an A, right? But then in the other guys, there's guys that are higher, guys that are lower, and we're always putting ourselves in some kind of category. Why? Because we're comparing ourselves with ourselves. What is that? That's just pride. It's just pride. And last but not least, pride makes us hard-hearted. We'll stop here, but we could keep going, right? Pride just makes us hard-hearted. It gives us a hard heart for unbelievers. We look around in the world and we say, I'm better than those poor saps who aren't going to heaven. They deserve to go to hell. I'm better than they are. I got myself out of this. My holiness, that's why God is accepting me. Of course, we would never say that out loud. <laughs> of course, we would never verbalize those things, but that's what's in our hearts, isn't it? Condemnation, judgment, that's what's in our heart, hearts. And so what are proud people like? They're harsh, they're loveless, they're condemning, they're defensive, they're self-protective, they're attention seekers, they compare, and they're hard-hearted. They may put a good face on it. You can come to church, you can hide it under a fake smile, or a quiet and a demure personality, but inside, that's what pride does to our hearts. And I hope, I hope, I pray that as we went through that list, that your heart was convicted by some of those things. If it wasn't, guess what? That's you, (laughs) right? If you're sitting there and you're like, man, I wish my spouse was here. She needed to hear that. What are you doing? You're doing the very thing that I was just telling you about, right? I don't know any of you. I didn't come up with this list because I know any of you. I came up with this list from where? From me. This is me. When I'm proud and I'm walking in spiritual pride and I'm not walking in the spirit, you know what? I am all of those things. I am all of those things. And it is easy, easy for us to stumble in these areas. And it's so easy for us to think and hear something like that, hear a list like that and take it into us and think, man, I'm really glad Bob is here because Bob is a proud guy. Bob needs humility. Bob needs to repent. He needs to change. And all the while, the word of God is just passing us by when we're the ones who need our hearts diagnosed. And so I hope as we go through that list, you say, you know what? I'm that guy. I'm that girl. I am that way. I have pride. I stumble in these areas. It's in me. It's inside of me. And I feel it. I'm aware of it. And I know it. And I want to kill it. I want to kill it. I want to put it to death. So here's the question. How do you kill pride? How do you kill pride? And this is the third point on your outline, destroying pride. And believe it or not, that was all just introduction. <laughs> In verse 27 of chapter 3 of the book of Romans, Paul deals with pride. And he says, boasting, where then is boasting? In verse 27, he says, it is excluded. Now, that's an amazing, amazing verb. It's the verb for kicking something out. It's kicked out. What gets kicked out? Pride gets kicked out, right? Isn't that nice to hear? You mean I can kick this out of my heart? Yeah. There's a way to do that. You can kick it out. But how? And Paul tells us this. And this, I think, is so fascinating. This is point A, again, if you're taking notes. Worthless works. Worthless works. Paul says this. He says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. What kind of law? Now, when you hear that term, law, 
natural, your natural inclination is to think of the Mosaic law. Because that's just what we think of when we hear the word law as Christians. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you think of the Mosaic law. But that's not the way that Paul is using the word here. When he says law, he doesn't mean some list of rules. He's talking about a principle, the principle of works, right? Now, now what's he saying? He's saying that you can't defeat pride with the principle of works. You can't kill pride in your heart by fighting it. You've got to let that sink in for a minute. If I went through that list and you said, you know what, I'm some of those things. That list describes me. I have pride in my heart. I want to get rid of that pride. I'm going to fight my sin. Paul would say, wait. You can't fight that sin. Your works, that principle of works, cannot fight that sin. And that's why the title is so bad to this sermon. You cannot do it yourself. I can't do it myself. I can't fix my pride. I cannot stop it. And every time that I try to fix my pride, I either end up falling off the horse into absolute depths of pride because I've succeeded, I think, right? I've become a humble person, and now I'm the most proud of all. Or I fall off the horse the other side, and I end up in total despair because I can't fight my pride. I can't get rid of it. I can't get these thoughts out of my mind. I can't stop having these things in my heart. We cannot kill it. You know, Paul had already condemned the Jews in this book. He's already condemned them for their false religious pride, hadn't he? He already said. They were quick to keep the law. The Jewish people were quick to keep the law. They were quick to do what was right on the outside. They even, and this is amazing, they even tithed their spice rack. You know, that we passed the plate in church. These guys, they, they bought a bottle of cumin at the grocery store, and they would put a tenth of the cumin into Ziploc baggies and drop them in with their check. Why? So they could show that everything in their life was exactly down to the penny. They had everything tithed perfectly. They tried to do everything perfectly, keep exactly the law in every way. They had every T crossed, every I dotted, everything in their Christian life was sort of screwed down as tight as it could be. And Jesus, what did he say about them? (laughs) He said, you missed the whole point. You missed the weighty things of the law, like justice and mercy and love, right? You missed all of those things. You're busy like shaking your spice rack into a Ziploc and you hate people. That's not love. That's not the keeping of the law. In fact, that's the violation of the law. And because pride doesn't work at the level of works, it works at the level of motivation, we can't stop it. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. We cannot fix our motivations. In fact, I would just challenge you, try sometime to fix your motivations in your own flesh. (laughs) Try this. Now, try to be humble and do something for God. Just try your hardest, right? I can tell you right now, you will fail. You will fail. I fail. Why? Because I'm a broken person. And when I try my very hardest, when I work my very hardest to make myself think about God and do something for God's glory, you know what happens? Within 30 seconds, I'm thinking about something else. I can't do it. And no matter how hard I try, I can't stop. So what does kill pride? This is point B here, and this is gospel power. Gospel power. Look what Paul says. He says in verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is kicked out. By what kind of law? By what kind of principle? By a principle of works? By something I'm doing? No, but by a principle, by a law of faith. And then he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, what Paul is saying here, he's taking this idea of justification and he's saying justification has in itself power. It has the power to kick pride out of your heart. How does it do that? Well, first of all, what is justification? That's a big theological, like $5 theological word, right? What is justification? It is God declaring sinful people righteous. That's it. God declares sinful people righteous. It's a not guilty verdict for guilty people, right? We're guilty. We've sinned. We're the ones who got the ticket, you know? We got the ticket from the officer, and he says, here's your ticket, sir. You go take this. This is very fresh in my memory. I got one three days ago. 
I was driving in a school zone, and I didn't know that the school was still in session. So I was coming down the hill. It was a 35-mile-an-hour zone. I was going 38 miles an hour. But when you're going 38 and 35, and it's a school zone, it drops to 25. And so I got a ticket. Now, when he writes the ticket, what, what's he saying? You're accused of this, John. But what's the truth? I did it. I can give like 100 excuses, right? It was 247. School was already out. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The school zone is in effect, right? I, I sinned. I broke the law. I'm guilty, right? What do I have to do? I got to mail them a check. It's painful. But I'm guilty. Justification is God declaring sinners not guilty. Even though I did it, I broke the law, I did all of that, it's a declaration that that's not true. It's a declaration that I'm forgiven. And the way that God does that is not arbitrarily, it's not just capricious that God says, well, okay, John's free, but other people aren't. No, what God does is he takes the sins that I have committed and he treats Jesus as though he committed those sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, totally righteous, never sinned in anything that he thought or anything that he said or anything that he did. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What is justification? It's God taking all of my sins off of me, all of that condemnation off of me and laying it on his son and crushing his son for my sins so that my sins are forgiven. And now God can declare me not guilty. He looks at me and he says, not guilty, it's done. It's finished. Past, present, and future, all your sins are completely forgiven. Past, present, and future. Now, how does that kill pride? How does that kill pride? Well, Paul tells us, and this is in verse 28. Notice what he says. He says, we maintain we maintain or we consider is another translation. We consider. Paul uses this word. It's the Greek word legizomai. You don't need to know that and you shouldn't care that that's the Greek word. But it's a really important Greek word in the New Testament. And it means to think something. Paul says, I'm, my thinking changes what happens to me. He uses this many times in the book of Romans. Look, look over in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 11, he's describing our union with Christ. And then in verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think about what's happened to you. Consider that this is true of you. That you're dead to sin, but you're alive to God in Christ. Think those things. Same word. And Paul here in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, he says, We consider, we maintain, we know that a man is justified apart from the works of the law. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the way to kill pride is based in what you're thinking. What you're believing kills pride. And what do you have to believe to kill your pride? You have to believe that the only reason that God accepts you the only reason that you can stand in the presence of God, the only reason that you're a Christian, that any fruit that you have ever had in your Christian life, no matter how long you've been a Christian, is 100% from Jesus Christ. There is not one thing you bring to the table. There is nothing that I bring to the table. Nothing. I am condemned guilty. And if I bear one piece of spiritual fruit in my life, it is 100% the work of Jesus Christ in me. And I got to think that. I got to know that. I got to believe that. That needs to be in my soul so that when someone says, John, great sermon, I say, praise God. I'm a jerk. If I preach a good sermon, that is Jesus and only Jesus. If I do any spiritual service, it is because Christ has empowered me to do that. If I have any good theology whatsoever, it's because the Spirit of God has opened my mind to see it. If I do anything in my Christian life that is holy, it is because Christ is working His holiness in me. And if I grow in my Christian maturity, it is not because I am a good student it is because God in his mercy is growing me. That is the only thing that will ever bear any fruit in my life. 
And I need to maintain that. You know, when you first get saved, it's so raw, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you've ever read The Chronicles of Narnia, have not ever read The Chronicles of Narnia, I would encourage you to read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Third book, it's this book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and in it, this, this bad boy gets saved. His name is Eustace, and he becomes a dragon, and the lion comes and cuts the skin off of him and peels his dragon skin off. Don't ask. If you've never read the book, you'll love it. It's amazing. But he cuts the dragon skin off of him, and he peels it off of him, and it's this picture of salvation. And when he peels it off, the lion puts him into a pool, and he says, it burned, but it felt awesome. When God peels all of our skin away when we first get saved, it burns us, but it feels so good to have a clean conscience, doesn't it? It's done. It's all finished, Lord. My, my sins are forgiven. You've taken them off of me, and it feels so good. And then we, we've been a Christian for a little while, and what starts to happen? We start to get calloused. All that rawness sort of goes away, and we begin to think, well, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm a pastor. I've got six kids. They're in Awana. How bad could I possibly be? And the Apostle Paul, he could have done this too, right? I'm the Apostle Paul. I get a title, Apostle, like big A, Apostle. I'm the Apostle Paul. I go, I'm, a, I'm the, the best church planter the world has ever known. I'm writing the New Testament, friends. How much better could it be? Paul felt this. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that to keep him from exalting himself, God gave him sufferings in his life because he knew. God knew if I let him go, he will go that way. Paul knew it. And so Paul, because he knows his own danger of pride, what does he say? I must maintain. I must consider. I must remember. I must think that I am justified apart from the works of the law. It is nothing I have done. It is nothing I can do. I am a saved sinner. I'm a saved sinner. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at verse 26. Many of you know these verses. They're beautiful. <laughs> Paul says this. He says, for consider and calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you got this letter, that's not a very complimentary letter to get, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty heavy-handed, right? You know, if someone comes to our church and they're preaching and they're like, you know, I look out at you and you're a bunch of losers. <laughs> Dude, come on, man. That's not the way to win friends and influence people. But Paul, he goes and he writes a letter and he says, listen, remember who you were. There's not many wise according to the flesh. There's not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. By his doing, you're here as a Christian. By his doing, I'm standing up here. By his doing, he's done all of this. Why do I boast as though I, I've done something? I must maintain that it is him who has done it. It is him who has done all things for me. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Wilcox, and he wrote a sermon called Honey Out of the Rock. And I want to read a little bit for you, a little section, so just follow along and listen. He says, when you believe and you come to Christ, you must, believe, leave, you must leave behind you your own righteousness and bring nothing but your sin. Oh, that is hard. Leave behind all of your holiness, your sanctification, your duties, your humblings, and so on, and bring nothing but your needs and miseries, or else Christ is not fit for you, nor you for Christ. Christ will be a pure redeemer and mediator, and you must be an undone sinner, or Christ and you will never agree. It is the hardest thing in the world to take Christ alone for righteousness, that is to acknowledge him, Christ. 
join anything to him of yourself and you unchrist him. And when you when we consider this, when we maintain this, when we remember this, what happens? What happens? When we maintain that we are sinners justified apart from the works of the law by the free grace of God through the gift of the sacrifice of his son and his resurrection from the dead, when we remember that, who we really are, what happens? It kicks pride out. How can I be proud? The son of God had to die for me, for me to be saved. Where is pride? It's done. I got nothing to offer. And if God uses me in any way, it is 100% for his glory. If God changes me, it's 100% for him. If God makes me holy and matures me, it's 100% for and from him. There's an old hymn by Augustus Toplady. It's called Rock of Ages. He says this. And this he wrote this as a believer. <laughs> he says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to, to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Isn't that awesome? That is what it is to maintain that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And when that principle abides in us, it kicks pride out. It kicks it out. That's why the title maybe isn't that bad, right? A do-it-yourself guide to humility. How can you do it yourself? Well, you can't until you remember that Jesus has done it for you. We need to believe and know these truths and live in them. C.S. Lewis said, pride isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. When we know our weakness, when we know our guilt, and then when we know that Jesus has come and has died for all of our sins, has redeemed us from the curse of the law and washed us with his blood, we find ourselves humble by accident. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess that we're proud. Lord, every one of us here, Lord, I don't know these dear folks, but Lord, I know they're proud <laughs> because we all are. Lord, it's got its roots into our flesh. And Lord, we do long for the day when we will die and we will be separated from this sin-cursed flesh and we will be with you forever. But Lord, until that day, Lord, I pray that you would help us, help me, Lord, help all of us to maintain Lord, that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Lord, that it is not us, but it is you who has done all things for us. And Lord, may we live our lives for the sake of Christ. Lord, may his name be lifted up Lord, in what we do and what we say and how we do it and how we say it. Lord, may we be quick to guard our thoughts and to remind ourselves again and again that the only hope for us is in Jesus and what he's done. But Lord, we thank you that that hope is a sure and stable hope. Lord, because Christ has died and he has risen from the dead. Lord, our justification is sure. Lord, help us to love these things and to love him. Lord, we thank you for him. We pray that he would be honored. In his name we pray, amen.